Welcome to the Danny Goldberg Rock and Rolls Hour. In this podcast, Danny shares his longtime connection to the path of the heart, as well as his very engaged life of social activism. If you are interested in supporting Danny's podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Danny. Hi, this is Danny Goldberg, and this is Rock and Rolls. And today I'm talking to Joshua M. Green. And he's done a lot of things in his life. And by coincidence, I've known him for a lot of his life. But what I want to especially talk about today are two books that he's written. One, Here Comes the Sun, The Spiritual and Musical Journey of George Harrison. To me, my by far my favorite book about any Beatle. And his latest book, which really fascinated me, Swami in a Strange Land, subtitled How Krishna Came to the West. And it's a biography of uh, A.C. Bhaktivedanta, so known as Swami you say, Prabhupada. Prabhupada, who many of us knew as the Hare Krishna guru. He popularized, as far as I know, the Hare Krishna mantra in the West and was uh, was your guru, yes? Yes, he gave me initiation yeah. in 1970. So um, I want to talk later about George Harrison and about how you came into this, but I think it would be fun for me to start with the book because as far as I know, this is the first uh, biography of of Bhaktivedanta, and it's an extraordinary story. Um, I'd like to kind of start with him coming to the United States, what his vision was, and and what happened during those first couple of years. He arrived here in 1965 at the age of 69, um, having been requested more than 40 years previously by his teacher, his guru, whose name was Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati, to bring the practice of bhakti yoga or devotional yoga to the West, bring it outside India, where it really had never gone before. The bhakti tradition is quite old in India. In fact, uh, you find references to devotional practice in the earliest Sanskrit texts going all the way back to the Rig Veda. Um, But it had never been understood in the West apart from British historians and uh, reports that were not grounded in the tradition. Well, just to understand what you mean by bhakti yoga, um, how would you describe Paramahatsa Yogananda? Because his book, Autobiography of Yogi, certainly inspired, you know, was published, I think, in the 20s or 30s and inspired a lot of Westerners in what seemed to me like a heart devotional space. What What is the distinction between that path and 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 what he brought to the West. Right. Good question. The, to try to simplify a complex question, there are two principal schools in India. One is technically called Advaita Vedanta, or sometimes called the Mayavada school, which views creation as a nondescript energy, Brahman, and we are manifestations of that Brahman. And when we come to the perfection of our yoga practice, our contemplative practice, our meditation, ego dissolves, individuality dissolves, and we merge with that Brahman energy. 
we essentially lose our uniqueness and become one with everything. The other school in India, which is the Bhakti school, um, also known as Vaishnava, says that we are qualitatively one with the totality of all energy of creation, but the self never loses its individuality. And the beauty of individuality is that it is what allows love to take place. Love is exchanged between two individuals. So the Bhakti school is the complement, if you will. It fulfills or completes the picture of all life as being eternal spirit. Yogananda represented that Advaita Vedanta school, which is usually accredited to the great teacher Shankara from South India, in the, I think about the 4th century. And uh, the, the Bhakti school, which again dates back to the earliest times of, uh, of Hindu tradition, Indian spiritual tradition. And before, I want to return to his personal journey, which is the real meat of this, but just to contextualize so I can understand. And where in that map would you put Ramakrishna? Because his, his teachings also reached the West through some of his disciples. Yeah, the, the, the early exponents, you're mentioning some of the very early uh, teachers from India who came to the West. There was, uh, of course, Vivekananda. Who was a disciple of Ramakrishna. And uh, Yogananda, you mentioned. And there were some other early, there was Madame Blavatsky representing the school of theosophy. And these were important early steps in the implantation of the deep mystic traditions of the East in Western soil. Uh, what Prabhupada did was, first of all, to come at a rather auspicious time, you know, mid-60s, mm. when our generation was ripe for some kind of experience, some kind of epiphany. And uh, he brought a dimension that had been marginalized for the most part previously. Those earlier teachers coming to America looked at the landscape of the American psyche and said, these people aren't going to understand the depth of esoteric devotional life and so on. Most teachers came and taught the physical yoga practice, which is what they saw the market is bearing. People were able to, they're so into their bodies that let, let's at least give them hatha and Ashtanga and other physical yoga practices to gradually withdraw them from their entanglement in, in the material world. Prabhupada wanted to establish the devotional foundation beneath all yoga practice, so he emphasized that. And he, he came here by himself, did he not? He did, and... Uh, here meaning New York City? He arrived in New York uh, on the docks of the... Here in, in 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 Brooklyn and stepped off the boat. And to this day, Danny, I swear, I don't know how he did it. I don't know how someone who had never been outside India had no money, literally no money. He had the he had forty rupees, which was a non-convertible currency. So literally, he had nothing when he got here. Had no contacts to speak of, no uh, influence or cloud or crowd of people waiting for him. He saw that the clock was ticking. I mean, at 69, he didn't have much time left. So he said he, he had been trying for many years to get something going in India, base 
followers, something, movement to start there. Who, co who comes to America without money? You're going to start to death. So he, yeah, he was alone uh, in every sense, except that he had Krishna, God, mm. in his heart. Mm. And through that love, he loved everyone. Mm. So he, di he didn't experience loneliness in the way that you and I might experience loneliness. So, so then what happens? Well, at first it was a real struggle. Uh, that winter of 65 was one of the coldest in, in more than a half century. And uh, he had very flimsy, doty cloth from India, these funny little white rubber shoes with a curly tip on the end. And he was quite a sight. Um, for a while, he had been given a room to live and work in by uh, Dr. Mishra. Uh, Brahmananda Saraswati was his later spiritual name. Uh, up on uh, West 72nd Street. And he was happy to see a fellow Bengali arrive to teach, and they were good friends in those early days. And then um, some of the people who were attracted by Prabhupada's message of devotion to Krishna helped him find a small storefront on 2nd Avenue and 1st Street, and that was the first Krishna temple in the West. And at that time, that was part of what we call the Lower East Side, yes. which was a magnet for the nascent hippie culture in New York, kind of the the, the balance of what was happening in, in Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco was happening in the, on the Lower East Side. So did, in your research, did he go to that neighborhood because he knew it was kind of a community of artists and, 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 and psychedelic strivers? Or was it just for the cheap rents, and it was a coincidence that it was that it was uh, I don't I don't think he knew. Way. It's a, it's a it's a good question. I've never thought of it in quite that way. I don't think he knew what the demographic of the Lower East Side was. As I say, some of these young people who wanted to help him get his own place found a storefront. It was a tiny little. It had been previously an antique store. So over the door was a sign that said "Matchless Gifts." A rather prophetic title for the first. And, and he kept temple. that. There, <laughs> he kept yes. that sign over yeah, there. Yeah, fantastic. So no, it was uh, he. He accepted the, the 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 courtesy of these young students and set up his shop there. And uh, and so what what happened? There were he. How did he even find his first students? It was through Dr. Mishra. Uh, at first, through Dr. Mishra, um, and then he began. Uh, the practice of chanting the Hare Krishna mantra in public. Uh, really, things got started when he implemented here something that dated back more than 500 years to the time of the uh, revered avatar or saint, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, mm. Sri Chaitanya, he is sometimes called, mm. who is uh, uh, honored by followers as an incarnation of Krishna who right. came they... to bring the chanting. Right. That mantra culture, which is now a whole category of music, right, um, really got a very strong push when Prabhupada arrived and brought the chanting into the public purview. He and he would do it. What there Tompkins was a park, park. in Lo Tompkins yeah. Square Park on exactly. the Lower East Side, yeah. which was the site of a lot of uh, uh, activity in the community. There were uh, there were peace rallies there. There was uh, dope dealing there, uh, but he would go there. Uh, by himself and or with some students and, and chant Hare Krishna? Uh, it was a very exciting time, and that's exactly what he did. You know, the Lower East Side in the 60s was part derelict and part mystic seekers. You know, you'd had, you had PhDs walking the streets looking for truth. Mm. You know, the, the jazz scene was down there. 
And in Prabhupada's early kirtans, or these public chanting sessions, a lot of jazz musicians showed up, learned the melody, incorporated the mantra into their uh, sets at Anyone clubs whose name New York. we might know? Um, uh, Pharaoh Sanders and oh, really? uh, his uh, side man on, on, uh, on piano, uh, who became a, a, an initiated disciple of Prabhupada's. Mm. Um, Allen Ginsberg would show up all the time. Well, with... all the histories that I've read of the period was that Allen Ginsberg was a, 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 a helped spread visibility for Hari Krishna chant and, and yeah, for he, Prabhupada. He, is he... that is that your reading sure. of history? No, Gin, Ginsberg was very um, prophetic in his understanding of the impact that Eastern mysticism would have in America, and uh, was astonished to find someone. In the Lower East Side, you know, surrounded by, you know, drunks and poverty, um, implanting what in India is the very highest level of spiritual culture. I mean, bhakti is the the the, the religion of the aristocracy. You know, the... So as I've studied this time, by January of '67, he's got enough of a following and enough visibility in the counterculture that, that, that the funding is available to create a temple in Haight-Ashbury and there's a big event with uh, San Francisco rock groups to help raise money for it. I think Big Brother and the airplane and Ginsburg emceed it. That was only like a year and a half after he arrived in the United States. Yeah. Like, um, how did things move that quickly that, that this lone figure... Uh, is is suddenly you know a public figure yeah. in, in 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 a counterculture that's under the microscope of of the media. Well, you you know you're asking one of the grand questions of history. You know how how does spirituality um, come about at any time in a in a country in a culture in a society? And you can answer that question on so many levels. Well, but you just wrote a book about it. What what, what is your <laughs> Well, some of it was that we were ready, weren't we? Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. you and I are the same age. We went yeah. to school together, and yeah. we remember those days. Yeah. Um, we were ready for anything. Yeah. Uh, it, it was a time when we were looking for peaceful solutions to problems and differences in the world. I mean, it's hard not to look at that arc and not see a mystical power to that chant because right. it's just there were all sorts of thousands of people trying to address the market you know, of of baby boomers, yeah. a, a, a significant percentage of whom were looking for alternative culture. Uh, but uh, there was nobody else uh, doing chants in a foreign language uh, that I know of that uh, that uh, that, that uh, became part of the story right. that way. Um, of course, you're looking at the socio-historic explanation for it. There's another dimension that I don't think we can track quite so intellectually. Good. I mean, and what, 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 what does your heart tell you? Well, about my this? heart tells me that periodically these very great souls, lovers of God, come into the world out of their compassion. You know, they, they see other people suffering and they suffer. The only suffering they know is seeing others suffer. You know, for themselves, they're at peace with God. They don't need anything for themselves, but they'll go to great extent, great risk, so that people like you and me can can benefit. Now, I think you mentioned to me 
recently that there was a change in the immigration laws of the United States that made it easier for people to come from India at some sure. point in the 60s? Yeah. Because um, it suddenly were... seemed like there were suddenly a lot of yogis or <laughs> self-proclaimed yes. yoga teachers sure. uh, from India mm-hmm. or other parts of, 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 of the East. Um, uh, in, uh, certainly in New York City, they, they went from zero to a bunch of them. Uh, was that a what happened there? Going back to 1904, there was great antipathy toward foreigners in America. You know, by 1904, so glad we've gotten rid of that uh, <laughs> that vibe. Yes, that's just part of the yeah, past. That's all history yeah. now, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, it was westward ho, it was building the industry of America, really laying down the railroad lines. And uh, it was America for Americans. And uh, foreigners were in such ill repute that Congress passed a law known as the Asian Exclusion Act. So it wasn't foreigners. It was Asians in particular. Because there were plenty of Irish and German and Russian immigrants coming in. So it was was aimed at Asians. Asians in large measure because it was a non-Christian religion. Right. And and let's face it, non-white. Non-white and also not the path of of Christianity. Right. So this law held for 60 years. And finally, in 1963, I believe, it was repealed. And then the doors to immigration opened. Between 1904 and 1963, there was something like a thousand people who were allowed to I love this fact. I didn't know this until you told me. And, you know, so many of... uh, so many times I will think and a lot of my friends will think, oh, you know, legislation and government is just doesn't actually make that much of a difference. We vote for the person we prefer, but real life goes on. But this is an example where a change in a law had a tremendous impact. And you're also pointing to something I think really critical that bears underlining. That is that real spirituality must make a practical, tangible, quantifiable difference in the world. There was a time historically when if you wanted to be a spiritual person or a yogi or whatever, you would leave the cities, you'd leave the right, culture, go to the go to the metaphorical woods, cave. Go to the caves, go to the mountains, and when it was all about you and your salvation, right? That that time is long gone. I mean we're too interconnected now. And our progress is intimately connected to the contribution we make to the society around us. So there were different people from India and America in the 60s. Uh, and we've talked about some of them. Swami Satchidananda was pretty famous. He was uh, gave the blessing at the Woodstock Festival and had the inter- created the Integral Yoga Institute. And there were quite a few others. In your study of Bhaktivedanta and that time, did they get along? Were they competitive with each other? Were they just in silos unrelated to each other? <clears throat> what, what, what was the vibe? Uh, all of that. <clears throat> I think on a certain level, whatever a teacher's tradition may be in the background, someone who's come to a real understanding of the nature of eternity recognizes that same awareness in uh, in someone else. And so 
tradition, the ritual, the externals may be different. Yeah. As I said, my last guest in this was a Catholic, and I did say to him, it's one God, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> on some level, this is one thing. Yeah. Well, you know that old saw where God turns to the devil and says, hey, you know, I've come up with a really great new idea. I'm going to call it religion. And the devil thinks for a minute and says to God, uh, let me organize it for you. Yeah. You know, yeah. as soon as... Exactly. Uh, as soon as something has a name, it has to differentiate itself from all the others, and you have to finance it and staff it. And yeah, well, that happened with him. It, 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 this gigantic organization grew up over the, a very short length of time, yeah. and and a lot of us uh, came in contact. I mean, there were different ways that one came in contact with with his teachings. As I as a, just an American young person, one was one was Ginsburg, who 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 a lot of us really took extremely seriously if he was enthusiastic. And I think he gave a, a blurb on a recording of the Hare Krishna mantra that was used in all the ads in the underground press. Brings ecstasy, I believe he said. Something like that. And, uh, and then there was, uh, there was George Harrison, who we're going to talk about a little later. And, uh, but one of the things was there were these people with very unusual haircuts. Uh, and, and uh, you know, American or Western young people who who were wearing these weird clothes and had kind of a one strand of hair uh, uh, dancing around, uh, often in airports, but in other public places, chanting Hare Krishna. How did that how how did that happen? And that was his that was his vision, or that just sort of happened. Uh, honestly, he never uh, demanded that of his students. Uh, some of the students picked it up. You know, you remember those days, shaving your head and wearing crazy clothes was a part of the landscape I was, anyway. I was never into shaving my head. <laughs> I, I was into growing my hair, okay. personally. Yeah. But <laughs> but it wasn't all that big a change, is the point. You know, experimenting in those days. Experimenting, uh, yeah. Often uh, included even by the terms, Even by the changes. terms of the 60s, it was <laughs> an unusual uh, thing to see. <laughs> and there was a sense of uh, otherness uh, who are, you, you know, and, 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 you know, there was a... Um, well, here's here's the deal. When when reporters would ask Prabhupada, "What are your students doing when they shave their heads?" He would say, "Well, it's a it's very clean. You know, the hair gets dirty, and this is a way of keeping yourself clean. And cleanliness is next to godliness." And then reporters would ask him, "Well, what about the robes? What's that about?" And Prabhupada would say, "Well, we want people to know that here's a person of God, and if you have questions or if you wish to." follow a spiritual path, here's someone you can speak with, just as an officer of the law wears a uniform and you recognize their position by that uniform. And then they'd say, well, what about the painting on the face? You've got paint on your nose. And he would say, well, it's actually on 12 parts of the body. We recognize the body is a temple of God, and this is a way of anointing the temple. So we acknowledge the body is sacred. So you met him at certain point, and... Uh... What was he like? Um, You know, I I still think about that. Um, The first time I saw him, he had just come from Russia. He had made a stop there to meet with some professors and initiated his first Russian students there. And it was in Paris in uh, 1969. And, um, no, 70. And... He was resting in the office of the Air India Airlines Bureau there, and um, I was sitting outside his room. I'd never been initiated for a year or so, but I'd never met him. 
And the door opened, and his secretary looked out and saw me sitting there and turned back and said, Prabhupada, should I let them in? I was the only one there at that moment. And I peeked around the door, and Danny, what I saw, and this is a radio show, so I'm going to have to describe it. He waved me in with, by making a, a gentle circle with his hand. He was sitting on the edge of a bench. One hand was resting on one knee. And with the other hand, he made this absolutely beautiful gesture of, of welcome. It was, it was Barishnikov. It, it, mm. it was a, a ballet. It was the first perfect thing I'd ever seen. You know, I don't know about you, but I twitch and I just fidget and I move around. There wasn't one iota of wasted energy. Everything was intentional mm. about it. Mm. And I... I knew I was home. Mm. You know, I, I came into the room and bowed before him and started weeping like a baby. Mm. And he looked at me and, and uh, that first encounter, which many people who meet very powerful teachers will explain something similar. Mm. I think you've had similar experiences mm. yourself. You never forget that. You, yeah. You're home. Yeah. You know, you're yeah. where you should be. Yeah. It was beautiful. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Um, now, another characteristic of of the of the late 60s and the Harry Krishna movement's place in it was this word popped up I don't know when it popped up called cult and you know to me what it meant was uh you know belief system that had sort of a uh, a dark edge to it there was something you know I like I want to love God I don't want to be in a cult you know that was just sort of a I didn't really know what either of those things meant but but to me it was pretty clear one one looked like light to me, and the other looked like uh, a trap of some kind. Mm -hmm. And uh, there were there were different. I mean, the most famous, uh, uh, you know, dark side of that was what happened with Jim Jones telling his you know people to kill themselves. Uh, and there was uh, you know in 1969, the publicity comes up about the Manson family, uh, and then uh, there were other situations all over the country that had kind of a weird twist to it. And um, I never understood exactly in 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 the in the in the Hare Krishna world. Anytime there's a spiritual thing, not only does the devil organize religion, the devil to me also organizes you know uh, paranoia and skepticism of authentic spirituality. So so you know I, I'm a I, I and everybody that I've loved, somebody else has criticized for some rumor they heard or something like that. But what was the deal? There, there were all these organizations. There were people then that had some sort of hierarchical power in different parts of the world, I would assume, in, in this new, newly created right. organization around his, his, his teaching. It, how much did he want that level of infrastructure, and, and how much did he try to guide it? Well, first of all, I mean, because it was a mixed a bag, as I understand it. Oh, always, always. Um, the answer to your question is in the Bhagavad Gita. Um, Prabhupada's edition is called Bhagavad Gita as it is, meaning as Krishna, the speaker, intended it to be, rather than Prabhupada's interpretation of Krishna's teachings. He's a conduit for the pure teachings over the course of history. Um, there, there's a verse in the Gita where Krishna describes that four, four general categories of people seek enlightenment, they seek God. One category is people who are in distress. They're hurting, and they seek shelter. Another category is people who want money and see an opportunity in religion and faith 
kind to, of the business of the, the business of, yeah. of spirituality. Yeah, and uh, a, th- a third kind is uh, curious, and the fourth is those who truly seek knowledge. And um, you get all of those and more when you open your doors to the public. So, Prabhupada came here. What he described once as emergency work. He knew he didn't have a long time to live. Mm. So he had to establish the foundations, the fundamentals of bhakti practice. And basically, he opened the door of his ashram, of his temple, and initiated almost anyone in those early days because it was an emergency time. Mm. He would ask them, so who are you? Are you the body? No. What are you? Well, Srila Prabhupada, you've taught me I am the eternal soul that is animating my body with consciousness. Okay, who is Krishna? Krishna is the supreme person. Okay, here's your beats. Mm. You're initiated. Right. And your spiritual name is... Right. Now, these days, you go through a year of study, mm. then another year of waiting with recommendations from institutional leaders, and you have to demonstrate character, and there are certain behavioral guidelines that you have to respect. Initiation into bhakti is a serious thing. Sex is limited to your life partner. No drugs. Strictly, the strict sense, meaning not even coffee or tea or cigarettes. There's no uh, meat in the diet, a strictly vegetarian diet. And the fourth principle is no gambling. Now, I couldn't quite figure out how did gambling... (laughs) work its way into the prerequisites for initiation until Prabhupada described that, well, all of life in this world is a gamble. You don't need to complicate matters. And money is also an energy of God. The Sanskrit term is Lakshmi, which is the goddess of fortune. So it should be respected. If you follow those four principles and chant a certain number of mantras on the prayer beats, you can be recommended for initiation. That's that's the, the, the today. Right, right. So at the time, I think this is in your book, um, but I just recently read so much about the 60s. I, I may have read this somewhere else. But that there was at this event in Haight-Ashbury that Ginsburg emceed. Uh, firstly, he sa- Ginsburg said um, he read uh, at that time those things of, you know, sex, drugs. And Ginsburg said, uh, look, I'm not going to give up cigarettes, but if it'll help matters, I'll say Hare Krishna every night, you know. (laughs) And then and then um, and then supposedly uh, he was walking out of there and there were all these women with uh, see-through, you know, um, satin garments. And, you know, it was a very time of a tremendous sexual experimentation. and and I th- and and supposedly he said this is really not a great place for a brahmacharya, right. <laughs> which is which means a celibate, you know. Sure. So in that culture, in that context, though, um, it's what 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 was the what was the theory of there was one group of people that were at least aspiring to live by by that set of rules, and many of them did. And then there was this wider public that that was um, like I was in Central Park once and somebody from the Christian organization was giving out uh, pictures, but whatever magazines. And on some picture, it said, you know, if you just say the name Krishna once with love, you're forever um, 
you're liberated forever or, liberated, blessed, whatever. Yeah. And I remember this vividly. I don't. I have not told you this before, but it it absolutely. I've said to to other people, and it's it's just a key moment in my life. This is before I met my t- my teacher. Uh, I said to myself, I can do that. I, I don't know about all this discipline. I this meditation, my mind wanders, and yoga, and my knees hurt, and and uh, you know, giving up things. I'm still trying to do these things. I'm not interested in. <laughs> But uh, I could say Christian with love, I could do that, and 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 I really felt that changed my life. I I, I, I felt it worked. You know, I, I knew I, there was a reason we're back together. I, I felt it. I felt it, it. It adjusted me in a subtle, cosmic, <laughs> cosmic way. I because I, I believed it. I I, I I took it. You know, almost like that childlike belief. But that was very different from this uh, more rigorous. Um, you know, more more consistent with traditional religion in terms well, of the, I see where you're going the rules. So so in terms of the mission. Mm-hmm. Um, how did those things coexist, as in your opinion? Yeah, um, it's honestly fifty years. Prabhupada passed away in nineteen seventy-seven. Mm. He arrived here in sixty-five. So it's it's been a, it's a half century. It's still a work in progress. You know, unlike Buddhism, which doesn't have very many external changes required, you know, to follow the Buddha Buddhist practice. Um, how do you integrate something so apparently alien into a very consumer-oriented, fast-moving culture? Um, there were some people who were just ready for it, and they moved in, and to this day they're still living in temples and doing quite well. Others who tried it, it wasn't for them, and they moved away. Um, I think the more level-headed people found some kind of homeostasis, some middle ground, where they didn't have to give up their lives. They were able to integrate the chanting and the dietary practices and the philosophy um, seamlessly. It it wasn't a strain. It wasn't some kind of mind-searing, gut-rending experience. Now, you tell a lot of stories in the book... um about being with him because then one, you met him that one time that you just described and then you 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 worked for him you you helped uh, issue uh, the, the release and publication of a lot of the books exactly. and and spent a fair amount of time with him and and you describe um encounters he had with other spiritual leaders and with other uh uh, uh leaders in general and and it seems like he was quite forceful in vegetarianism now i've been a long time vegetarian vegetarian maybe i got it because of that moment in the park i i i i, I don't know why but i i i'm all for you know i'm I'm a long-time vegetarian but what even you expressed in your writing about it i think you were a little surprised that he would be that confrontational yeah i was um tell a couple of those stories because i found they gave a human context to a divine conversation that we was were in, interesting in paris 1974 i believe it was and invited to meet uh, Cardinal Danielu, who at that time was a very highly placed um, cleric in the French Catholic Church and an important uh, theologian, along with uh, Hans Kung and others, was part of a very um, forward-thinking movement within Christianity that was looking to um, validate the, the practical importance of Christianity in the in the 20th century, and um, wrote some real important papers about it. Um, 
Ironically, his brother, Jean Danielou, was uh, a Sanskritist, one of the first Westerners to ever be initiated into Hindu tradition. So here it's a very interesting family. Mm, You've got mm. these real spiritual extremes going. Mm. And uh, Danielou met with Prabhupada. And I thought I was doing the translation for Prabhupada from the French to English. Right, because you, you speak fluent French. Yeah. I was at the Sorbonne right. when I first met Krishna devotees. Um, I thought this was going to be a, you know, kind of a get acquainted meeting, uh, an opportunity to make friends within the French church. That would be a useful contact to have. Instead, Prabhupada sat down and said, uh, let me ask you a question. He says, in the Bible, it says, thou shalt not kill. Why is it that Christians kill animals and eat them? And I think Daniel was kind of taken up short by that. I don't think he was expecting it. And, and you weren't said, expecting uh, it either, were you? Not really. No, mm. I, I thought, gee whiz, this is a great opportunity to build relations mm. in, in France. You know, uh, yeah. you know, anyone in any kind of uniform in 1960s France was suspect. I mean, this is a people... France had lost two world wars. Yeah. They had seen the Nazis walking under the Arch of Triumph. Anything in uniform that struck of something different was in, you know, not welcome. Instead, uh, Danielou said, well, you know, uh, the uh, Catholic tradition says in the Bible that the soul is present in the human beings, but not in the animals. And Prabhupada immediately went to that and mm. said, now, wait a minute, let's first define what life is. What are the symptoms of life? He says, animals eat, we eat. Animals procreate, we procreate. Animals defend themselves, we defend ourselves. Where, where's the difference? If the symptoms of life are there, we have to acknowledge that there is a divine spark, whether it's a plant or an animal, anything that we say is alive, there's consciousness at work there. The conversation went on for a while. Danielou wasn't really ready to concede the point. He said, I don't understand you Hindus. You would prefer to to uh, uh, see your children starve mm. than the, to kill the sacred cow. I don't understand. And Prabhupada uh, stuck, stuck to that point. Mm. He stuck to that till finally the meeting ended. And afterwards, on the drive back to the Krishna temple, I said, um, Prabhupada, you were really adamant about about this one point. And he said, how can we speak about making further spiritual progress? How can we talk about bringing any kind of spiritual stability into the world if we haven't understood the basics? What is the most basic thing needed for a spiritual life? It's that you're not this body. You're an eternal soul. And that soul can take any number of forms. We're transmigrating all the time. Maybe in our last lifetimes, we were in animal forms. We don't know. So I think his point was, before we can have any other kinds of conversations, there has to be some common ground of understanding about the nature of consciousness. And that was really at the the root of his mission, was to establish consciousness as an element of creation just as fundamental as gravity or time or space or quantum physics. All right, let's put a pin in this for a moment and talk about George Harrison. <laughs> okay. And I think he quickly will merge into the conversation about <laughs> Bhaktivedanta. But but uh, uh, let's start with your meeting him, and then and then I have uh, more stuff I'd love to talk to you about. But how, how, how do you come to meet George Harrison? I'm 19 years old. 
I'm studying at the Sorbonne. I can't figure out what Stendhal has to do with my life. So I figured, let me get some travel out of this. And I go to London and I visit the Krishna temple. And they say, tell us about yourself. I say, well, you know, we're having lunch there, nice vegetarian lunch. I say, well, I'm in school. And you knew about, how did you even know about the Krishna temple? There was a, a devotee named Umapati in Paris at the American Center for Students and Artists where he used to hang out after class. Mm. And uh, he was looking to start a temple in Paris and said, you know, you should visit London. Didn't you? Did I get this wrong? I thought you had heard a version of Hare Krishna in a disco or something. Did I imagine well, this? Well, Umapati ran the Saturday night dance at the right. American Center. Right. And we became friends, so I would help him. I would pass him the records, and he'd put them on the turntable and play them. And about every 20 minutes, he would play this recording, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. I'm saying, Umapati, why, why do you keep playing that same song over and over? <laughs> yeah. you know? He said, well... Because, and you know, there's a bass and a drum beat to it. You know, it was a George Harrison recording. George Harrison produced it. As I recall, it was not really released in the United States, or it wasn't a hit in the United States, but it was like a hit in Europe, right? It went to the top of the charts in about a dozen countries yeah. in Europe. Uh, so his answer was when they, he pointed down to the dance floor, yeah. he says, when they dance to this, they get spiritual benefit. Mm. I said, okay, I had no idea what he was talking right. about. So you go to London. He says, go to London. Our teacher's there. It's a good thing. It's very rare to meet such a pure soul. So I waffled for a while and finally went. Prabhupada had left the day before. I missed meeting him. But having lunch with the devotees, they're asking me about myself. I say, well, I play in a college band. I play organ. Really? Come with us. So we pile into a Volkswagen minibus. I say, where are we going? And I say, well, congratulations. You're in Krishna's band now. We show up 15 minutes later, the door opens, and there's three on the door. It's three Savile Row, which was Beatles headquarters, Apple Corps. And I say, my gosh, what, what are we doing here? We walk inside, go downstairs, and there's George Harrison. They were recording an album of mm. Indian devotional music, and they needed someone to play harmonium, which is this little hand-pumped and keyboard. And is this instrument. the album that was called The Radha Krishna called Temple? The Radha Krishna Temple. Yeah. You can go on YouTube and, and hear <laughs> yeah, some of this. I've been listening to recordings. It's beautiful. And, uh, I've rediscovered it recently because <laughs> it's not on Spotify for some reason, <laughs> but it is on YouTube. Well, that's me chanting and singing on yeah. the album. Samsara Dava Naradida Loka. It's my big claim to fame as I recorded with George Harrison. That's a pretty big claim to fame. <laughs> that's a... Uh, that was quite a time. So I'm looking. I'm saying, okay, let me get this straight. If I if I stay with these people, I get God and, and the Beatles. Okay, well, all right, I'm in. Yeah. So that's how I joined the temple in London. And you never and you left college, right? That was it. That was it. I, yeah. you know, I said this is a lot more interesting than yeah. than, than uh, the Lourdes et Le Noir. So you ended up. So George Harrison. It was not. He was really into this. This was oh not just a, <laughs> a side project. I mean, this was no, really yeah, a part of his life. Mission. He was yeah. on a mission. You know, he was born in 40, 43, I think. And so uh, he was, what, 20, 26 years old? 26. Yeah. This, that was the height of his you know, spiritual energy. And, uh, and the height of the Beatles' fame. And the height of the, they were, they, no one knew, but they were in the process of breaking yeah, up. But they were right. releasing some of their most incredible albums. Right. And George took to this like a, a like a, a duck to water. I mean, he he described that he loved the idea first of all of God as a person. He loved that. He mm. loved the idea that the relationships in in this world 
are a reflection of the eternal love that the soul feels for God in the eternal realm. And uh, he called us to his home once and started playing something in the way she moves, this gorgeous thing. And he says, you know, actually it's about Krishna. But I had to say she, because otherwise people would get the wrong idea about me. Um, they dedicated a lot of his post Beatles music to that spiritual journey. Mm. And if you read the lyrics, it reads like a spiritual diary. Very candid, very open, very honest. He talks about falling down as well as his successes, you know. And then his first solo thing. album is is All Things Must Pass, yes? All I Things mean, Must Pass, the first pure, three records set uh, you know, uh, in pop history. Uh, and, and three records set and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and really a, a spiritual concept album. Right? Listen, listen, go back and listen to those songs. It's extraordinary. Take the, take the, uh, the title song, um, uh, Living in the Material World, rather. I'm flipping a little bit. Uh, he starts off describing, you know, got caught up in the material world, senses never gratified, uh, rising like a tide. And now that's, that's a condensation of about seven verses right out of the Bhagavad Gita. Mm. And he had this extraordinary skill of being able to condense sophisticated philosophical ideas into singable lyrics. And then the song goes into this bridge with a flute and tabla, and he says, from the spiritual sky, such sweet memories have I. Now, right there, it, the indication is that we have been in that eternal realm at some point. Mm. We turned away from it and came into this world of birth and death. He says, such sweet memories have I. I pray that I will not get lost and go astray and fall back down into the material world. And the drums come back in and the horns and the mm. guitars. And you really feel like, boom, you've come back into the material world again. Beautiful, beautiful. Now, uh, he's creation. somebody who, who uh, obviously unbelievably high soul, talented, uh, controlled his own life completely by that time in terms of, you know, then have to, certainly have to worry about money. And pretty much anyone in the world is going to take George Harrison's call. He has, uh, he, he has Bhaktivedanta as a, as a teacher. I don't know if he considered him his guru, but he's certainly there. And, uh, and, but yet he did fall back into the, you know, he developed real, it's all widely documented. He had drug problems. He got angry about paying his taxes. He, very complicated combination of, to me, genius, spiritual vessel, and, 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 and human. What do you make of that whole thing? Well, Danny, remember something, you know, the, the, the text described that this soul comes into the world. We've been here a very, very, very long time. You know, to come to the human form according to the Puranas takes millions and millions of births, you know, in pre-human form mm. until we evolve. There's this evolution, but it's an evolution not of bodies but of consciousness. The soul evolves from lower to higher form until you reach a human form where there's this opportunity to turn attention within and ask, who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? Why am I here? Because we've been here such a long time, our conditioning is very deep. Uh, I've seen a lot of people get discouraged because they'll say to me, you know, Yogeshwara, I've, I've been chanting now for three months, you know, and I still haven't seen Krishna, you know. And I'm, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, patience, be, you know, give it a chance. You know, mm. We've been here a long time. Just keep going. The mm. chanting works. It mm. works, but you have to be patient. Mm. 
And George, that was George's situation. You know, he he was a rock star. Yeah. So uh, he lived that life. No, he was one of the. He was in the Beatles. He was, <laughs> you, know. you know. But he was so sincere, Danny. Yeah. Uh, he was such a beautiful human being. Uh, the depth of his sincerity. I, I I wish I had an ounce of of his devotion. Mm. And you said that one of the things you felt you figured out early on was to not talk about the Beatles. Oh, when you were with him, yeah. If he saw for one second that you had that little, you know, glimmer in your eye, like "Ooh, I'm with a beetle," he would walk away. He would just turn and walk away. Right. He did not want to reinforce that. He would have called it the Maya self. You know, mm. the, that whole illusory material thing. He was over that. He he did not want to have that anymore. So if you treated him like a human being and talked to him about meaningful subjects, you know, Bhagavad Gita or the chanting or whatever, he was right there for you. Now, there's a story in one of the books, and I've read them both within a few months of each other, so I I forget which one, uh, that you tell of him and John Lennon um, confronting Bhaktivedanta about whether or not Bhaktivedanta was saying that his path was the only path to truth and God or a path. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it's one of my favorite things I've I've read about either the Beatles or spirituality. So tell that story and, and <laughs> expound on it a bit. Uh, John was very courteous to Prabhupada. I mean, George was the one who met him first, but he introduced the others to him. And uh, John and Yoko invited Prabhupada to stay with them. When Prabhupada first came to London in 1968, he stayed at Tittenhurst Manor, which was the Lennons' home. And uh, in fact, at one point, they went to him and asked, could he arrange for them to be reborn together? And uh, (laughs) Prabhupada smiled at that and uh, said, well, it's not my business in particular, but... um, that conversation that you're referring to, uh, there's always this question of, is someone saying that their way is the only way? You know, was Prabhupada saying it's my way? Because to me, that's, that's one of the big questions in all sure. of spiritual yeah. life and in human life. Yeah. yeah. His answer to them was, uh, if if you want to be serious about spiritual, you can, you can window shop till the end of time, you know, and not go very far. Spiritual discipline requires a real focus. If you want to be a Buddhist, be a Buddhist, but don't mess around with it. You know, if you want to follow the bhakti path, follow it, but understand it and truly follow it. And they were saying, well, does that mean that none of the other editions of the Bhagavad Gita are right. valuable? You know, only right. yours? Right, no, I... I Prabhupada's I've, point I've was... I've wondered that also. Well, his point was, you know, we have to ask who qualifies to convey the actual meaning of the speaker of the Gita. If it's someone who is not interested in Krishna's message, who wants to appropriate the Gita for their own ideas, that's not going to necessarily be the most effective addition to read. He said, it's not me. It's that I represent a tradition. The tradition dates back to Krishna. And therefore, he called his movement the, the Krishna consciousness movement. Bhagavad Gita is Krishna's teachings. And as a devotee of Krishna, Prabhupada had no ego in commenting on the verses. So he now was you've trying been to get teaching, that point across. You've been teaching for years the Bhagavad Gita. That's one of your one of your many gigs. 
And do you only teach his version of it? No, no, not at all. Uh, in, in fact, I make it my business to highlight the value in many different editions mm. of the Gita. Uh, it's not that everything else is useless. It's that you have to have your eyes open and be able to contextualize things. Mm. For example, one author interprets the Gita as a, as a work of ecology. And there's a lot of ecology in the Bhagavad Gita. Krishna talks about himself as manifest in nature, you know, that he is the light of the sun and moon, that of bodies of water, he's the ocean, of immovable objects, he is the Himalayas, of trees, the fruit-bearing fig tree, of seasons, flower-bearing spring. And it's a way to see God in every moment of life. It's a very beautiful poetic description. So one person has translated the Gita as a work of environmental care. You know, in that sense, gardening, when George become a, became a wonderful gardener, gardening was like caressing the natural body of God. But I, I went astray from what I wanted to really talk about, which was this conversation that you described. That, that, as I recall, the way you wrote about it, George was almost trying to mediate between yeah. John and Prabhupada. Yes, that's is exactly that right? right. Yeah, he, he want, Look, when you have something wonderful, you want to share it with your friends. Yeah. You know? Whatever differences they may have had, the Beatles were the closest of friends, and, and George was hoping to share this with them. So he was kind of trying to broker a piece there, you know, and... But do you think he understood John's point of view also? Because he also came from this sort of skeptical of authority. Well, that you're putting your finger on it. I mean, you know, John came at the peace process from the political side. George was coming at it from the spiritual side. And there are some differences. Someone asked George after John had been so tragically murdered, did he think that John had ever gotten into spirituality? And George described that uh, a few months before that terrible event, he had gone to visit John in his apartment, John and Yoko's place here in New York. And he saw that there was a whole stack of Indian music CDs there. And he said, so there must have been some some influence. You know, he was touched by it. Well, plus, I mean, John wrote Across the Universe. I mean, <laughs> I mean, come on. You can't say that's not a spiritual song. Not at all. Not at all. You could never say that. Sure, he was trying to broker a piece there. Um, but the, the nature of the conversation had to do with, it, there's one truth. I mean, I believe one truth, many forms. Mm -hmm. Because it, you know, we're like sitting right here. There's two forms, you know, uh, of, of the <laughs> zillions that that exist. And 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 you look in Hinduism, especially. You go to the temples, and there's the whole tradition that I'm deeply touched by for reasons I don't understand of the Divine Mother. Mm -hmm. And there's there's the Ramayana, you know. And as I understand it, do you think Ram and Krishna are the same being? Oh yes, that's, the same, that's straight same, out of the same being, right? Out of the text, yeah. Yes. Different different missions. Yeah, right. Different incarnation. Being. Yeah, sure. and and. Uh... By the way, that was also my initial attraction was that when I visited the London Temple, there wasn't just a Krishna deity on the altar, but there was also Radha, the mm. feminine Godhead. Right. And I said, yeah, "That's cool. You know, God is a woman. That, right. that that's pretty cool." Right. I also right. liked that Krishna was black. Right. I thought that was very hip. 
Right. So you know, those were the, those were the two things that initially attracted Speaking, me. Speaking just the, the total tangent, but maybe you know why in all of the um, pictures that you see of Krishna and the depictions of Krishna is is he blue? Um, Prabhupada is, was often asked that question, and and the answer that he most frequently gave was when a, a, a the, the technical name is not blue; it's Shama which is a kind of bluish gray, the color of a fresh rain cloud. And Prabhupada said, on a very hot day, when a rain cloud comes between you and the sun and brings you relief from the heat of the day, doesn't that make you feel good? So he, he equated Krishna's color to the soothing uh, effect of a rain cloud on a hot day. More technical answer, someone once described that if you mix, since God is the source of everything, if you mixed all the colors of the rainbow together, you would get Shama. So I've never tried that, so I don't know. I just thought maybe it was to be a metaphor for divinity, that it was to, to separate, you know, that, that it was not just another person, you know. But that's just my idea. Well, <laughs> there, there's not just his color. There are many things that distinguish yeah. Krishna and make him unique. Right, but in a depiction, it's dumbed down. It's simplified, you know, to a, to a, just a, a, a an image. Uh, but um, well, um, we are here in America. It's it's uh, these podcasts go up uh, several weeks after the conversation because the way the way that uh, the system works. And so, by the time people hear this, Donald Trump's going to be president of the United States. And uh, it's um, it's it's affected a lot of people I know in a, in a deep way, and it's created fear, and it's created uh, almost doubt about what is God doing? You know, what what is this? I thought we were getting somewhere as a as a as a species, uh, you know. Uh, and at the same time, uh, you know, we know there's forces uh, in the universe far bigger than certainly my mind can comprehend, and I honor that. But I'm just wondering, as someone who spent so many years uh, teaching this stuff and uh, balancing, uh, you know, quite a effective functional life in the material world, and at the same time being devoted to Krishna, what, what, uh, what advice would you give for people that are, that are angst-ridden at this moment? Uh, uh, first of all, don't despair. Um, this too shall pass. And if I've learned anything from the Bhagavad Gita, it is that we should never judge things by their surface appearances. Mm. All that we perceive is the tip of the iceberg. Mm. There's so much more going on beneath the surface, which is why we should never be judgmental about anyone. Mm. Right after the elections, uh, I've been teaching at Jiva Mukti Yoga School for about 10 years. And the dis Gita discussion group there was very energized. And, and people were saying, you know, these people are not smart. I don't see that Trump is an educated man. This is people who aren't intelligent voted for him. I said, whoa, whoa, slow down, slow down. You, you have to accept that there is a large number of very intelligent people mm. who voted for Donald Trump. And you don't have the right to judge them, first of all. If you want to know why, when for us perhaps the choice was so obviously something different, Think in terms of um, if you break your arm, you know how you set a broken arm? You break it again. The doctor will reset your arm by breaking it a second time. I know a, a surgeon who told me once that if you have a heart attack, one way of bringing someone back is injecting poison into their heart to jumpstart the heart again. Mm. 
I think a lot of people may not want Donald Trump in office forever, but they thought that the country needed to be jump-started. It needed something radical to, to get it back to a place where a large number of people who had been ignored and not heard and disenfranchised were heard. So uh, I don't think we should judge things by appearances. That said, I also don't think we should be passive. Uh, you know, we're, spirituality benefits by cons from constitutional safeguards. The notion of setting aside protocols of, of democratic good government uh, I, it, it, that's a frightening thought. So. I also, yeah, I think for some reason, I don't know much about Islam. I've not studied it, but I do believe there's one God. And I can't believe that a billion people are connecting with God through a tradition that doesn't have a genuine spiritual truth to it. And uh, I uh, I just want to keep sending love to, to Muslim Americans because I, I, I can't feel good. It's one thing for us philosophically to be kind of offended by the tackiness or the uh, you know of 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 Donald Trump uh, through a through a kind of cosmopolitan liberal New York eyes that I have, as well as many of our listeners. But but I think of the of the vulnerability of people who are singled out and stigmatized because of uh, things they personally and their families have absolutely nothing to to do with. And and I and I do feel we could we can honor uh, exactly what you're talking about, which I completely agree with, and also honor our. Uh, compassion and and uh, and try to reach out to people who are feeling particularly vulnerable right now Agreed. Uh, because uh, because uh, I know one of your other expertises is the Holocaust and I don't want to go into that in this podcast in any great detail because we don't have much time left and that's really would be if you're willing to do it I'd love to do a whole other conversation with you in a few months about that but one thing we know is uh, on some level we're all in this together well, just by way of kind of putting a fine line on it and bringing this lovely conversation to a, to a conclusion, if we learn anything from that dark period of human history, it's that bystanders, those who do nothing, side with the perpetrators, not yeah. with the victims. Implicitly they do, yeah. And we have an obligation as thinking, feeling human beings to stand up for groups that are marginalized or underrepresented or, or misunderstood, uh, not as a political imperative. For me, Danny, it's a spiritual imperative. Right. Uh, why should I love you? You're so different from me. Why should I love you? Well, if you understand the foundational teachings of any true faith culture, it's because you're an eternal soul just like I am. Mm. Your culture may be different. Your place of birth may be different, but we're family. I love you because we're family. Mm. And and uh, so there should be room for that. Can't think of a better ending. Thank you, Joshua Green. Uh, anybody who's ever been interested in the Hare Krishna movement, you will be delighted by the book Swami in a Strange Land. I urge you to read it.